All right, everybody, welcome to the show. We're going to be talking about the history of Latinos in Memphis uh, on this episode, one that we're very much looking forward to. I've got uh, four people around the table, along with myself and Joe Lowry, and we're going to have them introduce themselves in a second and just talk about uh, uh, all the history that's out there for the Latinos and where we are today, where we want to be, where we've been. So uh, if we can start with you, uh, Simone, just go around the table and introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Simone Delermi. I'm an associate professor at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, and I teach Southern Studies and Anthropology, and currently I am working on my second book project, uh, which is investigating uh, the Latino community, the Latino population in Memphis, and trying to document their history. All right, thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel Connolly. I'm a reporter with the Commercial Appeal, and I'm also the author of a book on uh, Hispanic youth in Memphis. It's a nonfiction book called uh, the Book of Isaiah, so the Child of Hispanic Immigrants Seeks His Own America. All right, glad to have you. Hi, thank you for having us. Uh, my name is Yancy Villacalvo, and I am a socially engaged artist, and I use my art to, um, as, as a means, I think that is, um, it has, the art has uh, the power to unite um, and to, create a positive message um, depending on the circumstances. So um, I am currently using one of my um, art installations, a, traveling, a national traveling installation to talk about uh, systemic barriers from uh, mass incarceration to um, immigration and family separation. Uh, and also currently working on Gateways for Growth, which is a, an initiative um, that Latino Memphis, um, help me out here, um, what is it, it escaped my mind. Uh, so it's three organizations, uh, New American Economy, um, Latino Memphis, and Welcome in America. Okay, good, welcome, I'm glad to have you here. Well, good afternoon, so uh, I am Jancis Hosman. <laughs> my other job is I am the executive director of Latino Memphis, uh, so, yeah, so always your kind of book. And uh, yeah, so I've been a Memphian for uh, close to three to 30 years. Wow. And uh, I came when I was very young. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so happy to be here, excited to, to talk about this important issue. Uh, so, an issue that is, is has a double meaning for me as a, as a Latinx person, but also on my day job as well. Sure, good. Well, we're glad to have you here. Joe's over there. He's going to be weighing in also, but let's go ahead and, and just get started. So just how many currently, so we're sitting here, uh, I think everybody knows we're recording this in the middle of a pandemic. So uh, the last part in mid kind of fall, beginning of fall in 2020. Uh, so right now, how many Latinos do we have in Memphis? Do we have any information, demographic information about that? Simone? Yes. Um, I've put some stats together. Between 2000 and 2011, you have the state of Tennessee being among the top 10 states in the nation for Latino population growth. So that was huge. Uh, And Memphis was really a hub, a center of that. Uh, If we go back historically, if we look at 1980, there was no growth. If you look between 1980 and 1990, uh, in fact, the population declined to 4,455 people in 1990. So we see that growth, astounding growth between 1990 and 2000, 
where by 2000, the Latino population grew to 19,317 people. And again, that's based on US Census data. Uh, and then the trend only continues into 2010, where the population numbered 41,994 people. So again, tremendous growth in right. recent decades. Yeah, so doubled there between 2000 and 2010. And I think that's a really relevant question, given that we are scheduled to finish the census tomorrow. Yes. Um, you know, ideally, we should have, been, have the census for another month. But this is um, particularly important because every time that we speak, that's like the number one question people want to know how many Hispanics or Latinos live in the area. Uh, and, and, you know, historically, communities of color have been undercounted. And this particular census uh, you know, cycle, uh, because of the White House pressure on, on adding a citizenship question, this and that, you know, it became even more uh, differentizing for people to participate in census, which is unfortunate for a different conversation, but um, but I think you know we're we're gonna be unable to accurately say for the next ten years how many Latinos say. I will just say one more thing: uh, Shelby County Schools has over fourteen percent of the student population is Hispanic, if that's mm-hmm. any in, in, in indicator. And I think Daniel, you mentioned that sometimes. Uh, I think I heard you say one time that. Uh, why don't you tell the story about the, the, the baseball part, the outside oh, yeah. part? So what I always say is that um, if you start doing the math that uh, you could actually fill the uh, Redbird Stadium downtown uh, seating capacity. There's about 10,000, so you could fill it, uh, and uh, you'd have thousands of Hispanic kids standing outside if you were to take all the Hispanic kids from our local school system and uh, put them in that stadium. Wow. That's a good visual. Sure, you can tell exactly. Yeah. So when did we see a demographic change um, in Memphis, do you think, as far as, uh, you know, more Latino churches, more stores for Latinos, or basically aimed at that demographic? When did we, when did we see that? Uh, are there stories in your lives you could share or particular experiences when you realize that demographic change had happened? I could. Um, we were talking uh, on our way here that the church that we attended was um, in English. And then, um, and actually that's where we met Daniel too. Um, we were not even married. <laughs> um, so um, we, we were thinking that, yeah, that was maybe like the ni- 1999. Um, and our church at least um, it started seeing uh, more, uh, you know, seeing more population, mm-hmm. and Father Ernie was the one who said, "Hey, let's just, let's talk about offering the mass in Spanish," mm-hmm. and that's when we started working with them, and then finally, then obviously you start seeing more and more and more and more. But in terms of the stores, you could not. There was one panaderia, the bakery store, mm-hmm. uh, La Espiga. And there was probably one tortilla bakery, and Mauricio actually had one, um, and maybe Mercado Latino, maybe just had two, mm-hmm. three markets, mm-hmm. and that was like the late nineties. Mm-hmm. So and I think as I could say, when Yancy said the nineties, I think what part of what happened is the economy was doing really well in the nineties, mm-hmm. and Memphis was experiencing growth. Uh, the suburbs were growing, so there was a, a big influx of. I mean, there was an opportunity for construction jobs and other jobs in the area. I mean, I think Memphis as a whole experienced that growth and you needed extra hands to do the work. Uh, And what I think was interesting that we saw Hispanics who, yes, were coming from Mexico and Central America, 
but probably the, the earlier ones came actually from larger cities mm. uh, like Chicago or even California or, mm. or, or Atlanta. They were just coming, they were probably already semi or established in those places. Mm. And then they travel to, to, to Tennessee and to Memphis to continue to help on that growth. Uh, I mean, let's just, for example, Yancy and I actually work in the Olympics in 1996. Mm. And you, know, you can imagine how the Southeast, how Atlanta grew with the Olympics. And we did see a lot of Hispanics working in construction jobs down there, for instance, for example. So, so I would say it was the nineties when we saw that that significant shift. Right. And let me add to that as well. In our experience, like how we arrived to Memphis, um, was very much intentional by the university. So, the university, Christian Brothers University, was very intentional about uh, bringing more diversity to the campus so they did offer across the world um, scholarships mm. and they are a Lasallian university and they're all over the world so that's how we came uh, with one of these scholarships but uh, along with us came people from Italy and and uh, you know I mean all the <laughs> countries you can imagine right. you know from Malta to Kenya Costa Rica Israel yeah. Palestine I mean you mm. like all of the countries. So that's how we came. So it was not that we were searching to come. Uh, we had the opportunity to come. We applied and got it. Right. But the university was intentional about studying. Reaching out. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And I'd, I'd just like to share really quick that uh, the church that we're talking about is Catholic Church of the Resurrection. And I vividly remember when I met Mauricio there because it was I was an intern at the Commercial Appeal in 2001 and uh, Willie Harrington had like a ceremony at City Hall it was like multicultural celebration and Mauricio was representing I think either Mexico or the Hispanic community and then I I went up and talked to him that was the first time I talked to him I believe uh, from because I'd seen him at church but never spoke with him and then um, yeah, so an interesting story is Mauricio also do, used to do interpreting, live interpreting for the uh, priest at Spanish Mass. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he, he does uh, quite well. I don't know if you still <laughs> do anything like that. No, I, <laughs> I, 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 I interpret for my own children now. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, what Yancy and Daniel are talking about, so here, just to put things into context, we're talking about you know the early days of a Catholic church in Hickory Hill. I mean, you would imagine that Hickory Hill is pr predominantly Latino and predominantly mm -hmm. Catholic, but back then there was not even Spanish mass and you needed a guy to translate to the priest. So, and that, that sounds like it was decades ago, maybe it was a couple of decades ago, but uh, so yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think a lot of things have changed and we can talk about it later and, and others haven't really changed a lot. Yeah, sure, yeah. There have some things have moved and some have not, yeah. So, residential concentration, you just talked about Hickory Hill. So where else? would we find Latinas congregating, living, shopping, working? Would you find that now? Did we determine when you and I talked the other day what the greatest concentration was? Did we say that it was national summer area? Yes, and if we go back to 2000, it's been documented that there was a large proportion of Latinos in the Jackson Avenue corridor 
and they reference that a lot. We have a 2003 La Prensa Latina article that actually shows the Jackson Avenue corridor and all the different Latino-owned businesses uh, and businesses that service the Latino population in that particular area. Summer Avenue has become international, I would say, at this particular moment. Uh, but again, other places that were mentioned were Parkway Village, Hickory Hill, Fox Meadows, Southeast Memphis. Uh, but again, those same spaces and places, at least in the 2000s, get mentioned repeatedly. I know every sing just about every single church on Macon, all the way from Leewood and Homer on the west, all the way over to about Waring, has changed from a, a conventional, you know, yeah. non-Hispanic to us, and, and the neighborhood is thriving over there. Right. Uh, if you go over to uh, Superlo, just about the whole store is, yeah. <laughs> is geared to whatever you want. They've adapted yeah. that store to yeah. the population that they serve over there. I, I think it's true, and I think if you were to take the, the 240 loop and just like almost do like a clockwise uh, description, mm -hmm. it, it's at this point, it's, I could almost tell you where there are no Latinos. Yeah. rather than where the Latinos are. Sure. And, I, and I think that speaks a lot about Memphis versus other cities where you had concentrations of, yeah. you know, and it is true that we do have some concentrations on Summer and Hickory Hill. Uh, I will tell you that there are very few Latinos in downtown and probably in South Memphis, but even in some parts of like, it's, it's really changing. I, I mean, it might be surprising for some people that Cordova High School may have the second largest Hispanic population yeah. Yeah. of Hispanics. But, uh, but, you know, we were talking about churches a second ago, uh, the Catholic Church in Collierville has a Spanish mass, right? So, yeah. I mean, it, it is it is just really everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, I noticed in the notes that Cleveland and Jefferson area was on there. I grew up at Jefferson and Claybrook, which is one block west of there, and Sacred Hearts right there on mm -hmm. the corner. So I would imagine that, uh, that the population that's going to Sacred Heart these days, quite a few of them, Right. It's, it's, it's getting hard. Yeah, in fact, it isn't, wasn't it a Sacred Heart the only church that offered Spanish Mass probably back in the day? Yeah. I, I would imagine. Yeah, that but is not, probably no. true. And, the, and Vietnamese, too. Mm -hmm. True. Yes, there is a concentration in them, too. And, and these concentrations, uh, they, they become strategic, right, for either side. So sometimes when we see uh, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement Activity, doing raids, I'm sure they map where these places are, but so do we. And we try to get ahead of them, right? So we know sure. they're going to be targeting this neighborhood. So we concentrate on canvassing and telling people do not, do not, do not open the door or things. But it's, I mean, I'm sure they have the same maps that we do. Yeah, probably, <laughs> yeah. yeah, probably true. Mauricio, you talked about having a store at one point. So I wanted to tell us a little bit about that and how that came to be. That. Yeah, so after I graduated from college, uh, I worked for a company for a little while, and then um, I started a business because I couldn't work. So um, technically, yeah. <laughs> I guess I, I did what a lot of people do. So um, you know, actually, I had you know different businesses over the years, and that is a very common thing mm -hmm. among Hispanics. I think if you look at some of the numbers, there are probably close to two thousand registered businesses in right. Shelby County that are owned by a Hispanic person. Well, what is interesting is that those are mostly probably 
subcontractors uh, working for somebody else. So they could be a one-person shop. Sure. You know, and it's not even a shop. It might just be somebody with a business sure. license. So so they can paint or hang mm. sheetrock or, or whatever they might do. So that 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 is um, uh, and, and 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 also if you think about immigrants, tend to be very entrepreneurial because the, the entrepreneurs and immigrants share a lot of the same characteristics. Uh, risk takers, uh, you know, ambitious, just ambition, a number of a number of things. Uh, I did have a couple of businesses. Uh, they were different. The common denominator denominator was that none of them worked, um, <laughs> <and> <laughs> no matter what I tried. And you know, part of that, and again, is the immigrant story. Might be uh, you know, lacking the capital, lacking the network, sure. lacking the know-how. Uh, I mean, you do have the the willingness and the ambitions to do these yeah, things, but knowledge. you don't have the things. And I, I think that continues to to be true today when you look at, at a lot of businesses. Now there are some, obviously, some immigrant businesses that have done extremely well uh, in, in you know in, in different in different sectors of, of the economy uh, mm-hmm. here in the So so, but yeah, I mean, today uh, I think this is accurate. Uh, it's, it's a little hard to check, fact check, but please do. Uh, we believe that there are more Mexican restaurants than barbecue restaurants in Memphis. Right? For a city that is known for its barbecue, that's that's pretty amazing. That is that is probably true if you think about it. Yes, uh, and I, I think that I speaks would, about not only yeah. the entrepreneurial side, but also talks about how through food people, uh, you know, enjoy other cultures. Right? I mean, sure. there are a lot of the restaurants because Memphis, like, yeah, Hispanic food. Yes, absolutely, we do. Um, I'm one of them. <laughs> I, I also um, uh, think back about our time at the university, how we lived in the university, so obviously you live in this bubble, sure. you don't have a lot of, uh, especially if you speak another language and you don't, you're not presented to any community right. members that can help you have that transition or closeness to the community or, or participation. Um, and you don't have a car, and with Memphis, <laughs> you don't have a car, <laughs> yeah, have you a don't car. go anywhere. Um, but just to give you an idea, in terms of the um, the small population of uh, Latinos and internationals, um, Christian Brothers University, um, we form a group that is called the Intercultural Club, and we used to call um, our friends at the University of Memphis from the international groups, and then at Rhodes, um, and we threw parties together. Yeah. But just to tell you how small the population was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, small, and had to grab them from all, all colleges around, right? Okay. Yeah. Cool. So why do we think that there was an influx into Memphis? You mentioned earlier that some of them they came from Chicago, they came from Atlanta, places like that. Why do you think, and maybe you spoke a little bit to it earlier, just why we think Memphis was that area. I know obviously distribution's big here, a lot of construction was going on, but just there's lots of reasons there. Do you think there's some other additional ones? So I think we saw that that growth throughout the southeast. Uh, you know, and perhaps if the story in Arkansas might be different with the chicken fact, the chicken processing plants. But Memphis, I think, it was primarily construction and distribution, like you said, yeah. and and on all the things that come along with that. Sure. But Memphis was attractive because there was, I, I think, there was, uh, you know, the economy was growing, mm-hmm. the the cost of living yeah. was uh, continues to be extremely ex- extremely affordable compared to if you're living. I was in an Uber in California a few months ago, and the guy was telling me how much he pays for his apartment. I'm thinking, dude, you need to move to Memphis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I cannot <laughs> afford an apartment here. Yeah. So, and, and third, I think Memphis was welcoming. Uh, uh, you know, we 
you know, we we brought this this breakthrough, this binary that this city had known forever, black and white, and mm-hmm. and you know, so and I think that conversation about how Memphians, many of them very progressive, many of them very conservative. Uh, were open to the idea of a third group, and uh, not to say that there were not other immigrant groups too. But, but it was it was uh, you know where where you may see white people who could have been religiously and politically conservative, they were also benefiting from the from from the labor of people. Mm-hmm. Where you saw African Americans who perhaps saw uh, another group struggling with that, and they were welcoming to that, and then people in between. So so I think there were a number of reasons why. Memphis, I mean, Latinx people were welcome in Memphis to a great degree and continue to be welcome. Mm-hmm. And, and also for, if you think about the other group of uh, immigrants or Latinos coming to Memphis, are the opportunities in health, um, in all the hospitals and research. Uh, so you have a, a, a big population of doctors, researchers, etc coming uh, to St. Jude and, and Methodist and mm-hmm. others. So uh, I think back then, uh, 2000, early 2000, you would get like these two very big populations or, of um, scientists or medical doctors and then also construction. But there was, there was not a lot here, mm-hmm. like in between. Mm-hmm. Um, that has changed, over, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then, there was like a big difference, I believe. And so to follow up on what Nancy just said, you know, my my wife's family is from the Dominican Republic, and they came because uh, her brother was a patient at St. Jude. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole class groups of people that ended up in Memphis for that reason. You know, we've met Venezuelans uh, in that situation. Um, and, you know, one of the things, too, to mention about uh, how people came, especially from Mexico, was usually they had somebody they knew um, in particular who invited them to Memphis. So uh, the family I wrote about in the book, um, the book of Isaiah, the uh, family in Mexico owned a sewing shop in their home, basically a small in-house business, and someone from that shop had moved to Memphis. And so when they were looking to migrate, that person said, hey, I'll put you up in my house in Memphis until it gets settled. And so a lot of the um, migration came through that sort of chain mm-hmm. once they heard about uh, the jobs that Mauricio was talking about. Right. Yeah, that's a good, very good point. So we've also talked recently, you guys came in the early 90s, is that mm-hmm. what I'm hearing? Okay, so, but there is some talk about maybe um, Hispanics have a much longer history in Memphis. Simone, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. I think that's kind of your... We found some... (laughs) A little bit of... Potential archival pieces. Uh, For instance, uh, March 2013, the Best Times claimed that the first Memphians were Hispanics. Uh, And there's, again, little hints, like the DeSoto Bridge we've mentioned in conversation, that perhaps points to an earlier history. But again, I don't know much about that, and that right. still needs to be uncovered. I well, don't know if any of you want to speak to that, but I see it as a very recent Yeah, history. and it's interesting. There's, and I think there were some early, earlier migrations of people from Colombia. So for years, there was an organization called Casa Colombia. Mm-hmm. And it was in Memphis forever. I remember you and I going to their galas. They were actually held at CV, CVHS. Mm-hmm. By the time the children of... So this is probably 20 years ago. 
and their children were already increasing by high school, right? right? So, and, and I, I don't know what the connection was, but there was, there, was a, there was a growing number. I mean, there were a lot of Colombians, mostly older at the time. Yeah. Uh, probably many of them are not around, but their children are. And yeah. so I, I don't know what happened, what triggered that, if it was St. Jude or if it was what it was. And, and, and I, you know, it, it was kind of an established group of, of maybe many of the professionals and, and others. Why they came to Memphis and when, it's completely unknown to me. Okay. There's also, um, in addition to the sort of uh, very old history that Simone was talking about of the Spanish explorers in this area um, and the more recent history of uh, Colombians, um, in the 1940s, there were uh, basically from, I believe it was the late 1940s to the mid-60s, there was a, a Mexican consulate in Memphis, uh, and it served Mexican workers who were um, as, uh, acting in the what was known as the Braceros program. Uh, it was a, essentially a guest worker program where they would come up and work in the, in the fields, and uh, the history of that program is... Uh, pretty dark history, a lot of mistreatment of the employees. But anyway, there was a Mexican consulate here for years until it shut down in the late 60s. Wow. That is fascinating yeah. to, to hear. And, and once again, it's the Southeast. I believe the oldest Mexican consulate in the United States was in New Orleans, uh, oh. which, you know, you could see people perhaps working cotton fields or something. I mean, mm -hmm. just throughout the region. But I have forgotten about that. that and I, I think I remotely heard about it, but that's, yeah. that's interesting. That, we yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so that actually, that article that Simone had mentioned earlier, that was actually written by John Harkins. Uh, obviously, he just passed away and one of the friends and researchers of the show. So, so we've talked a little bit about coming to Memphis and, and where we're living and all those things now. So any challenges? What are we what are we kind of going through right now as far as challenges both documented and undocumented Latinos? What are they facing right now between 10, 20, 15, 20, 30 years ago and now? Are there any differences? None. Everything's going well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they're both. Uh, they're, um, I'll speak to the point of view of um, just the recent events, um, I think that Memphis before, it was very obvious that it was more welcoming. Um, but again, in the last four years, I guess with the, um, this um, presidency, it has experienced um, a harder um, just an environment. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of fear, a lot of... Um, yeah, insecurity. Uh, so I think you know that is a big challenge because the the more that you feel threatened, the less you're gonna be uh, you know outdoors and going and investing in in um, stores and buying stuff and and you know that it's not safe. So mm -hmm. you instead of purchasing a home, you don't know what is gonna happen. So you rent. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a definite definitely relationship with the economy growth as well mm -hmm. um and that has been very obvious in the last in the last years so you know there are other things that have changed and i'll let you you know you guys continue that conversation but um it is you know that challenge has been definitely mm -hmm. uh, seen by documented and undocumented yeah okay yeah, i mean i would say that the, the opportunities have 
increase for sure, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and we are the product of that. I mean, the fact sure. that we are sitting here at this table talking about it is, mm -hmm. is an example of that. Mm -hmm. but, but it's also the reality that we still have some of the same challenges and, and sometimes even bigger. Why? Because the community has grown exponentially. So, right. um, it, 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 so, so, I mean, the community has grown exponentially. The second reason is perhaps that uh, we, 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 are, we represent a migration that has never stopped. So mm -hmm. this is not, you know, we're not third generation Irish. Uh, that you know our great grandparents came, right. or, and, and yeah. you know so so that's the story of this country. Where where we have people like us who've been here for almost thirty years, to people who just arrived history, mm -hmm. uh, and and so that that has that's that's a, a another set of circumstances. And finally, just call it like what it is. I mean, systemic racism and issues that prevent people from you know accessing opportunities. So there are there like Yancy said. I mean, I think this presidency has shown that there are people who don't want anybody to be undocumented, but they don't want anybody to be documented either. Uh, and, and whether they say it or not is, is to be seen, but, but, but the reality is that there are still barriers that uh, prevent people from moving up. And, and finally, I guess the fourth one I would say is that the infrastructure and the resources have not been able to keep up with the population growth. So mm -hmm. where 20 years ago there was probably no... Uh, there was probably a zero um, no, uh, number of Latino principals in Memphis in Shelby County schools. What well, today we have one, right? So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we have gone from zero to one, uh, and it's it's uh, we see that when we celebrate things like, oh, for the first time we potentially have uh, an African American vice presidential candidate, right? So like, whoa, what about all the rest, right? I mean, so it's 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 cool to celebrate these opportunities and this. You know, these changes, but at the same time, as of today, we have zero representation in government, zero representation at, at, as the head of any major corporation in the city. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I have I'm yet to meet the first uh, Latino firefighter in Memphis. Maybe there's one. I've never seen one. Uh, there are probably 20, 30 Hispanic police officers. Uh, or I mean, the numbers are still very underrepresented, even in that gap that Jesse was talking about earlier. Sure. Yeah. And I believe also one thing that has not changed and is definitely needed is immigration reform. Mm -hmm. uh, because regardless of uh, what, you know, how many degrees you have, um, I mean academic degrees uh, you have, or um, if, you, if you have a business, or if you have the money, or if you have the desire, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the system to be or to reach that documented status is incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. um, as an example, and, and we've lived this, we've gone from visa to visa to visa every year uh, for the last 29 years, and we just were able to become citizens last year. Mm -hmm. um, Two years, years now. Two, oh my God, yeah, two, two years. Um, and I know about it because I attended the ceremony and wrote about it. <laughs> right, but you know, and that is, we are completely bilingual. Mm -hmm. We have, um, I'm an entrepreneur, Mauricio Head, Latino Memphis. Mm -hmm. We, um, you know, we've been from one visa to the next, never fall yeah. out of the status. Right. Um, I mean, like all of these positive things that people think, oh, just get documents or just get, um, you know, um, legal, what they call. Yeah, right. uh, there's really no pathway. 
uh, or clear pathway, and they make it incredibly, incredibly hard to fill out forms, to get access to. I mean, I have an MBA, and it was extremely <laughs> difficult right. to get all of these forms. And mm -hmm. every year we leave to uh, you know overseas, mm -hmm. and coming back, we our life is in jeopardy. You never know, even if you have the visas. You, is, your life is never sure until mm -hmm. that uh, officer that you're in front of um, at the airport, mm -hmm. they have your life um, in their hands and it's up to them to let you in or not. It doesn't matter if the embassy has already issued a visa and has given you the permits. So right. that living in limbo is not only, you know, it doesn't, it's not only stressful, but it really affects your health. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm talking about like from a privileged point of view, um, I cannot imagine somebody who is seeking these human rights to immigrate mm -hmm. um, and they do not have the language or the means or the access or the connections to, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, to be here. So it, it really affects the community, not only the, 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 the immigrant community, but the immigrant, I mean, the, the community overall. Mm -hmm. uh, if somebody is not thriving, then nobody else is. I just wanted to jump in because I, um, I remember vividly the ceremony where um, Mauricio and Yancy uh, got their citizenship, and it was something like three hundred people, and they had this uh, at the end. Um, all these people with different nationalities came up and said, "You know, I'm from such and such country. My name is this." And one one of the people said, "I, I guess I can't be deported now, can I?" Uh, at the microphone, and so, but I remember Mauricio and Yancy were telling me that at the time that, like, even though they had a green card, that was a real concern. Like, you can't. There's no guarantee with with a president like the one we have. Uh, and in my own case, uh, you know, being married, I'm a U.S. citizen, uh, of course, born here. Uh, but you know, my wife is from the Dominican Republic, green card holder. We got married 2018, and one of our first orders of business was, let's get her citizenship because you don't know what's going to happen with this president. Hmm. And it's not, I mean, these like um, green card holders or permanent residents can be deported. I mean, and they mm -hmm. have been deported. Yeah. And that, that is happening now, and that, that, that happens also, like in California in the 19. What was the 60s around the 60s so even if you have permanent residency you could be deported so there was there's a there was a real threat and there is still a real threat um for many hmm. and i think what is relevant because I, I know so, and this is not necessarily a political show but what i think is important is how i mean this is history right i mean what is what is is, is what is happening right now has been playing a, a major role on on where this community has been and where is it going, not only economically, but when you think about opportunity. So in order to be a police officer, you have to be an American citizen, but if you if, if becoming an American citizen is extremely difficult, mm -hmm. well then it's gonna be hard to have police officers who are like that. But, but there is also, even if you have children who were born here, the perception that this community has of law enforcement you know, may hold some people back because you, and we're going to see this in the African-American community too. People are saying, well, it's not cool to be a police officer right now, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, I mean, these, these, are concept, these are 
consequences that will play a major role in our present and in our future. Um, you know, Yancy elaborated a little bit about you know her anxiety every time she came. Well, think about the anxiety, the adverse childhood experience that thousands of children have every day if there are no other parents that are going to be here. So right now, as we speak, you know, we are seeing a new chapter of history playing out hmm. that will have consequences for 30 years. I mean, 30 years, children are going to be talking about how it was when they were five. And they're only going to be 35. They're going to be way younger than we are. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to continue to, to, to carry on with the consequences of what is happening now today. And if I may um, just illustrate your point, um, there was there's there are thousands of stories, but one that it really resonates um, is um, you know this um, couple that we knew um, for a long time. Um, their daughter was born here, and he she um, is serving in the military. Well, her dad got uh, deported. I mean, and this this is just uh, maybe three years ago, mm. and the daughter is serving the country. So she's saying, you know, how can I be serving my country? And my country just deported my father, yeah. who did not have a criminal record, did not have anything, but just because he was undocumented, because they don't have access. You know, once you um, and then there's that's going back to my point that the system, the immigration reform has to happen because we have archaic um, uh, system and laws and do not apply. So even if you, you know, your children are citizens, even if you, you know, like you have all of these, you know, good check marks, mm -hmm. there's no way, there's no way. And then families get separated. So what happens, like if you, you know, uh, fast forward years, I mean, you know, then the love for your country um, gets diminished. I mean, you question all of this, and yeah. you know it's an all-around <laughs> um, problem, and it's very inhumane too. Yeah. yeah. Just real quick, um, one of the things I uh, when I write about this issue um, about immigration status, I usually say that um, you know if you if you look back at the histories of the 1990s under Bill Clinton and. Uh, uh, George W. Bush uh, in the 2000s, uh, basically what it boiled down to was a system of allowing uh, people to live more or less in sort of a gray area where technically they had no immigration status, but the government wasn't uh, strictly enforcing the law. So again, I often talk about the people I wrote about in the book. Um, these were folks who came from Mexico and had basically entered the country without permission, made their way here, uh, and quickly opened a business. Um, they owned a house, vehicles. Um, and so they were living openly in the United States, but with limited rights. And so um, it's, a, it's a really strange system. And now, as uh, Yancy and Mauricio were discussing, uh, it's more common to see uh, basically the government cracking down on that on individuals in that situation. Uh, the flip side is also true that there are people in that situation who still live a more or less normal life. Uh, I met one guy in that situation who said he loved Trump. I think I told you guys the other day, it was a, uh, a undocumented guy from Guatemala. He said, uh, this was last year, and he was telling me how much he loved Trump because Trump 
you know, has created all these jobs and you think he's, he's great. So, but anyway, the point is that, um, the, the way I try to explain the immigration system is that, um, a lot of people who lack immigration status in the past were sort of given informally limited rights to, to live in the U S and, yeah. uh, that kind of informs a lot of, frankly, the history of, uh, uh, Hispanics in Memphis. Joe, I know you were relating a story to me earlier about just getting the word out, speaking of the safety and the well-being of the Latino population, just the information stream and trying to get the information out to them, just the normal things, just like safety. Undocumented Latinos faced when they were migrated to Memphis. Uh, 10 to 20 years ago, most people have come from places in, in the world that had no OSHA, no fire protection, no fire safety training, no fire prevention, no disaster training, yeah. uh, no survival training for earthquakes. I know that during Hurricane Elvis uh, in 2003, we invited Latino Memphis to come to the EOC just to get the message out mm. when we had all the, the power customers yeah. that were out. So basically, they, this group of people have come here and it's culture shock because where they came from, there was nothing designed to keep them alive or even cared about keeping them alive. Mm. That's a good point. Yeah, really interesting point. 2001, there was a research study done, uh, University of Memphis, Center for Research on Women. Uh, they had 250, 250 Latino immigrant women and children gathered together uh, for this event. And the topics they mentioned as being primary issues in the community were education, immigration status and labor issues, family and personal life and health issues. But a lot of it, again, I found very interesting. We're saying what are the problems in the contemporary moment? What were the problems? A lot of it is repeated mm -hmm. from what I hear. A lot of it deals with translation, just not being able to get the basic information or access mm -hmm. to resources. Sure. You know, one of the problems, and, and I've seen it firsthand, is the language. Because we've got words in our vocabulary that there's no words for. Yeah. How, yeah. how do you convey a message that if you wash your hands in gasoline, you're going to die? How do you convey that? Yeah. So, and if you wash your hands in gasoline, it's got benzene in it, it's carcinogenic poison. It's going to attack you, mm. and it's going to kill you over a period of time. How do you how do you keep guys from from washing their hands in gasoline so they aren't able to, to walk their daughter down the aisle to get married? How do you get that message across? And that mm. speaks to the labor issues. Where sure I was looking does. at some of the actual quotes, where women who yeah. were working in actual you know factories were talking about how they were being made to lift heavy things, but they're pregnant, mm. and again, they didn't know what their rights were. You know, who do you yeah. speak to? Are you going to be fired for actually raising? Uh, the issues. Right. So there's a lot of problems there, there. There was a lot of exploitation. Sure. Not so much now that there, than there was in the in 2000 and prior to that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, 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 a couple of things on that. I think there are two big buckets. So <laughs> so the exploitation. I think you're absolutely right. I think I think we have we have seen more exploitation than discrimination, uh, and and it's because. This immigration system that is broken that Yancy was uh, referring to earlier uh, allows, and what Daniel was saying that you know that, that people have been here with limited rights. It's not only from limited rights from the government, but you know from from just fully participating 
and, and, and being able to complain when they need to complain, whether they are abusing at work or in any place else. So that has actually, you know, by, by it, it, it has created a system where people can be exploited with, without, you know, without any repercussion, which is, is very unfortunate. So, so we have seen that and that increases the cost for everyone, right? Because um, Joe, you mentioned earlier that you rescued people, you know, before on, on you know substandard working conditions, and that continues to happen. With that, that even for people who are very conservative, well, that creates cost to first responders. It puts first responders at risk. It, it just increases bills in hospitals and things like that. But the la the language issue is another issue. I think oftentimes I hear people who say, well, they should speak English. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, I still have an accent. <laughs> that never goes away. Uh, you don't have to speak louder or slower. I still understand the same way. But, but I do think that we need to understand that because the migration will never stop. There are people who are newcomers. And that learning a language as an adult is difficult, particularly if you don't even, if, if you don't even speak your first language uh, or, you, or you cannot read and write. Many of the people that we see in Memphis that are Hispanic probably have a third grade education. So they are unable to even write in their own language. Many don't speak Spanish. So learning a third language is, is a challenge. I'm not saying that it's not ideal. I believe yeah. people would love to do that. But it's, it's, uh, I think it's important to, to recognize that if Yancy and I move to China tomorrow, it might take us you know, some time to learn the language. And that's with an education, right? Uh, so when you don't have that, that basic, uh, that, that, well, that base, it sort of makes it even harder. Yeah, I want to also point out that um, like a lot of the conversation that has happened today, it, it's more about the liability of Hispanics just being here. Uh, I just I want to make sure that we um, we talked about the uh, the contributions of immigration, you know, um, um, of everybody. Um, but in particular, we're talking about specifically Latinos today in this podcast. Uh, so I just want to make sure that that we address, you know, a, a few points that that really spark out is one is um, immigrants are super appreciative um, of the new or, or the of the welcoming community. So um, that is definitely uh, plays you on on um, on a different level because uh, we. We are, you know, we're very happy to be here. We're very appreciative of the opportunity. Uh, so we we have this uh, duty, right, internally to, you know, I want to be even nicer to you because, you know, you open, you welcome me with open hands and, and, and you're giving me this, so I want to contribute back uh, to the community. So that I think that is one that, that all immigrants carry. And then the other one is resilience. So the communities are have a struggle, and just the fact of coming from another country and just making that journey, regardless of how it was, is is like you know it's a book in itself. <laughs> so all of these stories, the resiliency that, that that the community experiences is super important. And three is thinking about really the economic contributions that that Hispanics have in our local economy and how. You know, you know, everybody loves money. Everybody talks money. So, if we, c how can we make sure that everybody who lives here can contribute and can spend a lot of money and can uh, engine this economy mm -hmm. for all of us? How we talk about density, right? Like, how can Memphis 
be even more welcoming, regardless of the uh, political arena right now? How can Memphis be more welcoming to new and aspiring Americans? And that is by, you know, thinking from, you know, police laws to, uh, to business laws to everything and bring people, attract people from Arkansas and Mississippi, but also from California uh, because Memphis has so much to offer. It is so, um, it's easier to live here in terms of um, just the cost of living. Yeah. And, you know, the more, the more people we have, the better, you know, the more money we have as a city. And Memphis has experienced not growth. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we have to switch our gears and say, how can we make this work for everybody? Well said. So you talked a little bit about some of the things going on today, like the pandemic we talked earlier just for a second, um, social unrest, all of that. What's, how's that affecting the, the Latino population right now? You mentioned some of the police unrest, things like that. Yeah, so I mean, just real quickly on the pandemic, um, you know, the uh, uh, Mauricio may actually, as from Latino Memphis, have better stats on this, but the uh, positivity rate for COVID-19 among Hispanics is very high, much higher than other groups. Um, so they've, they've been definitely affected by that. Um, fortunately, the death rate has been not as high, perhaps because the population is younger, but um, and, and a lot of people have lost their jobs. And again, uh, Mauricio uh, is probably has more information on that, and uh, I'll pass on the social unrest question to him as well. Yeah, so I, mean, I echo you know, Daniel's comments on COVID, uh, and also Yancy's on, on the asset-based conversation. Thank you for, for saying that, because, uh, but, but uh, yeah, we, we saw frontline workers who continue, or essential workers as, as we call them, who continue to, 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 to operate, uh, yet a lot of people lost businesses. Uh, um, be, because I mean, it, everything circles around this immigration question. Because people don't have uh, status, oftentimes they are unable to access uh, some of the safety net uh, things mm. like the stimulus and unemployment. So people continue to work, which once again we all benefited from that, but we don't give anything back, right? Mm. Uh, and 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 then people oftentimes don't have access to health insurance or simply cannot afford to take a day off to go to the doctor because you know we, people continue to work. So that has been challenging. On the social unrest, I, I think um, Latinos, they, you, you're gonna find perhaps diff different kinds uh, because there's diversity within among us, just like in anybody else. Uh, you are gonna find, I think, many Latinos who will identify with the Black Lives Matter movement, such as ourselves, uh, because we, we see this as, a, as, as an issue that affects you know, vulnerable communities, uh, and we totally get on board with that. I think when you go to marches, and even when you go to an immigration march, oftentimes you don't see a lot of Latinos. And it's not that because they don't care, it's because they're afraid to even exercise their basic rights of public assembly and free speech, right? So, uh, so I think sometimes their, their public participation is, is obscured by the fact that they, have, they are afraid to show up. Yeah. Uh, but people have, you know, somebody told me one time, you know, we may be fighting different fights, but we're fighting the same enemies. Hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, to the um, present social unrest that is very unfortunate, but it, it, it was a, a pressure uh, cook, right? Um, hmm. uh, it has always been there. I think uh, now it's, it's great that people are like talking about it mm -hmm. and 
many organizations and companies are really thinking about it and like even thinking about boards, laws, and how you know hiring or the language and um, of this inclusion and diversity language that everybody should be. I mean, it, it shouldn't it, it shouldn't be like a news, right? It should have been included all along, but you know, <laughs> at least it's happening now, and it is a, it is a step forward. Um, I also think in, in, in terms of the Latino community and other minorities, um, and, and this, this is very controversial, but I'm gonna say it. <laughs> We've taken a step back and a, uh, and, and, uh, and a seat in the, like in a, in a back seat mm-hmm. with all of this social unrest because right now, you know, everything that has happened with George Floyd and all of the other killings have, have been absolutely horrible, uh, in dust, and all of the negative connotations that you can put it. Um, and that is right now what we have in front of us. However, you know, all of the other needs that continue to happen, um, like, you know, family separation, immigration rights, and so forth, that continues to happen. Uh, but the media obviously helps in, you know, where is the focus now? What is the new cycle? So we, I mean, all of us want to be super respectful, and sometimes it's like, okay, so we shouldn't say anything now because right now that is taking precedent, and that is, you know, the important to lead. So, oftentimes the rest of the minorities feel underrepresented, unheard, and we can just see it now. Like right now, Memphis, uh, you know, for the police officer, for the police director, they are they put together a committee, right? Of uh, diverse community. Well, it's only black and white. <laughs> it's binary. Uh, you, you know, you don't have all of these intergenerational or any other minorities represented. So how can, you know, it continues, I mean, the, the, the focus is, is uh, and the narrative is always black and white. So um, we have to start thinking differently, you know, who, who else lives here? how you know we can say like hey we're here <laughs> actually you know i don't know if i can say it but you know Mauricio and others is like hey can we help and like oh yeah you'll be informed later on but you know right now you're not part of the discussion and you will not you will not be you'll be you know we'll notify right. you right. so that mindset has to change yeah yeah that's actually a great place to stop <laughs> that's a great message anything else that we want to talk about or any message anything we want to how many hours do we have well <laughs> our listeners are pretty Could graceful you talk about a little bit about just like the upcoming um report on um uh welcoming strategy welcoming for gateways for, for girls just to, oh, to say yeah. you know this is coming up we are working on this and this will you know that that will be a positive message i don't want to end on a negative note <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely so in terms of incorporating latinos into the city of memphis and other immigrants uh new and aspiring americans uh, the language that, that I like to use now that I've been introduced to. Uh, there's an incredible initiative that Yancey has been uh, directing, Gateways for Growth, that's very intentionally uh, trying to pinpoint the challenges mm-hmm. that, that new and aspiring Americans are facing as they're trying to be incorporated into Memphis. So there'll be a report that's gonna come out that's very much directed uh, 
you know, at, at public partners, private sector, uh, just trying to notify people of, of how they can make transformations to say their nonprofit organization okay. to better incorporate and inform others. Good. So there is an important report coming out that's Good. intending to incorporate. And we will link to that when that comes out. So let us, let us know when that is released. Um, I want to thank everybody around the table. This has been extremely valuable and, and informative. Uh, so I want to appreciate uh, everybody's being here. And uh, we will link to all the things we talked about in the show notes. And uh, stay tuned for more on the uh, Latinos in Memphis. Thanks. Thanks.